You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy, uh, along with One Step Off the Grid and the EV-focused The Driven. And joining me as usual is David Leach, principal of ITK. David, I trust you are well. Giles, I'm well. I trust our listeners are enjoying the podcast. And uh, even though I'm from New South Wales and it's always first and nearest dearest, uh, we've got a great uh, guest today talking about a state that potentially uh, has the most to offer for uh, decarbonisation in Australia. Well, that's certainly the case. Um, Queensland, um, of course, has had a 50% renewable target um, by 2030 for some years now. It's actually now upgraded that to 70% by 2032 and 80% by 2035. It remains, however, the state with probably the biggest proportion of coal in its generation of any state and with the least amount of renewables, I think barely over 20%, maybe 23% in the last 12 months, thanks to a couple of new projects which have been added. And um, it does have some big projects coming down the line, but David, um, you have interviewed uh, earlier today or earlier this week, Paul Simshauser, the CEO of Powerlink, which is the main transmission line, uh, well, the owner of the main transmission lines in that state. Um, let's have a listen to that interview. Uh, it's a pleasure to be talking this afternoon to uh, Professor Paul Simshauser, who is the uh, CEO of Powerlink, uh, Queensland's transmission um, operator, planner and owner. Paul, thanks very much for uh, uh, talking with uh, us here at Energy Insiders. Thanks, David. Lovely to be here. Um, I guess... Um, Powerlink is, 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 is a large organisation in a lot of ways. It's about $7 billion of regulated asset value, about 15,000 circuit kilometres, which I need to recall all the time how big Queensland is, uh, dealing with average power demand or transport in about six gigawatts, I think is the average level over a whole year. Um, and it's about to double its size. Tell me, I suppose, to start with, what's, um, what's top of your mind uh, for, the, for this year and next year and the year after, Paul? Yeah, we've, we've certainly had a, uh, a busy um, handful of years. I, you know, I, I, I started at Powerlink about uh, just, just under three years ago now, David, and, and, um, and I'd, I'd had a view at the time um, that uh, you know, transmission was going to be roaring back to life just because I could see what was happening um, sitting inside a, a renewable generator you know, and, and, the, and the rising importance of transmission. Um, I probably uh, under, greatly underestimated you know, the Pepsi challenge that, that's facing the whole industry at the moment. And, uh, and it really comes into um, sharp focus for you when you start trying to plan a power system with, with none of the legacy um, coal plant that we've had um, you know, over the years sort of one thing to, you know, um, dial up renewables uh, when you've got, you know, all that capacity around. It's quite another when you think about the scale of renewables that you would need in a, uh, in a, you know, in a, in a uh, renewables-rich power system. And when I say renewables-rich, I'm meaning, you know, sprinting past, you know, those usual 50 to 60% numbers and getting into those higher uh, market share rates. And, and 
what you end up having to do, I guess, is, is to start planning for a system where um, you, you're having to think a lot more thoughtfully about uh, what peak power flows look like. And, and they're no longer our evening peak. It's really about, you know, all going well with, with all the various forms of storage. Uh, you know, that combination of um, power system load and, and charging and, and, uh, and pumping loads. And um, that ends up leading you to a very, very different place that, uh, to where we've been historically. And uh, stacking that end to end means you, you know, there's quite a task in front of us. And, and that's got us very focused at the moment on what those first steps might look like. And, uh, and I'm sure, David, you'd be very familiar with the Queensland Energy and Jobs Plan and the Infrastructure Blueprint. Uh, indeed, indeed, I am. Um, and I, I want to get very much onto that because uh, even before the Queensland plan and possibly the most exciting plan in the whole of the, the NEM, I would say, in in the medium term um, uh, and and even before that, uh, I guess uh, AEMO through the ISP um, showed that Queensland had a, a, a um, likelihood of playing a much bigger role in the NEM simply because of geography. It's got great wind and solar resources uh, compared to the rest of Australia, really. Maybe no better wind than, uh, say, Tasmania, but certainly better solar pretty much than anywhere else. Uh, and this requires, I think, about uh, going from, under the Queensland plan, going from three gigawatts of connected renewable energy in excluding uh, behind the metre um, in in. 2022 say up towards 25 gigawatts and more by 2035 but uh, Paul I'm, uh, I'm talking a lot but I wanted to ask what can what what is the capacity in the transmission network at the moment in Queensland to connect how many megawatts could you connect uh, if the if the plants were actually under construction right now it's a really good question David and, and um, uh, look the way we've gone about uh, connecting up uh, generators at the moment gives you a bit of insight. Um, so, so when we think about the renewable energy zones that we have under construction, and, and as we sit here, that we've got three, uh, one in the far north, um, and and then two in the on the Darling Downs, one in the Southern Downs near Warwick, and one on the Western Downs, uh, just near uh, Kingaroy, and and collectively they could, you know, there's probably uh, four, four and a half gigawatts of um, you know, hosting capacity. And I think if you think about transmission hosting capacity, that's one number. And then what re renewable generation you'd put into that should be a higher number but just because of the natural portfolio effects of, of, um, of wind and solar generators. You, you'll be able to squeeze more in without, you know, serious curtailment. Um, we also have, a, you know, another couple of renewable energy zones that we're staring at around central Queensland. And, and my sense is that we'll be able to get another couple of gigawatts uh, into those, um, so so that'll get us close to you know sort of ten gigawatts without you know doing um, you know with the the grid as we as we have it, and they're really sort of just bespoke, you know, largely double circuit two seventy five, quite often radial connections too, which makes them nice and neat, and and also too I'd hasten to add quite low cost. You know, we the first three we've done of you know sort of ranged you know in in total cost you know sort of around the. Oh geez, I don't know. Sixty million for the first one, and and you know, um, hundred and fifty to one hundred and eighty million for for the subsequent uh, couple of um, renewable zones. So they're they're really nice, short, sharp, punchy ones. But I'm sure, as you'd appreciate, with all things, when you've got you know a higher demand, you know, the supply curve will be upward sloping, and and over time, you know, the renewable zones we need to tackle will become more complex and more expensive. 
So just that's interesting. So just to be clear, if there's three gigawatts today and maybe uh, a couple of gigawatts under construction, but but even with before we get onto the new 500 uh, kilovolt uh, transmission backbone, you could go to 10 gigawatts of connected power, zone power, if I can call it that. But within the zones, there could be more. So. That, that's already more than the current average Queensland demand. I mean, there's plenty of room to expand in Queensland right now. Yeah, that's right, David. And, and obviously, you know, in order to do that, um, you're going to be, um, you know, bringing on a change out in the plant mix. Um, you know, there, there'd need to be some changes in load flows and, and so on. But, uh, but yeah, we, you know, sitting here right now, you could, you could see a scenario where we could get close to 10 gigawatts of, of, um, of utility-scale plant you know, before you've really pressed the button on the, you know, on, on really large augmentations. That said, you know, you'd obviously, you know, holding the demand side constant, if you bring that much renewables in, you're going to have a very different looking, um, you know, uh, final supply mix uh, for, you know, on a megawatt hour basis, if that makes yep, sense. Yep, yep, uh, That's And that's stuff to talk about. Now, you've mentioned the renewable energy zones and... Um, you know, New South Wales has got a model, I suppose, which is the one I'm most familiar with, of, uh, but which hasn't really come into practice yet. But the plan, as I understand it, is that all the generators within a renewable energy zone have to meet uh, generator performance standards. And you'll excuse me if I get the acronyms wrong. Uh, and then there's essentially a more, uh, uh, the REZ is treated more as, as a generating unit by AEMO so that the, the, the idea is to, uh, I suppose, reduce the total uh, difficulty of getting connections done because a lot of the work's done within the REZ. How are you approaching this, this in Queensland? Yeah, we've been quietly working away in the background, David, on a, um, I guess what you'd call a batching process. Uh, you know, the, the connecting up generators uh, has been uh, a complex, and I say that having sat on both sides of the fence, of course, you know, I've, I've, I've lived through the joys of, um, you know, the uh, 5.3.4A and B letters and, and the associated delays with a, uh, you know, with a battery uh, in, a, in, a, in a former life and, and similarly on, on sitting in here at, at Powerlink. Um, I've had fielded, uh, you know, a number of calls over the three years I've been here just, just in terms of trying to navigate that process. So I think, you know, internally we're lucky at Powerlink. We've got a, an extremely good team who've got their arms around modelling, um, you know, GPSs and, and system strength early on. Um, they also formed a view that, you know, in, in doing renewable energy zones going forward that we could come up with a, uh, a sort of more streamlined approach uh, and, and, and I guess the way that, you know, the, I guess the terminology we've chosen to use is, is like a batching where we collect up for, for a group of generators almost on a template um, basis. Um, you know, it won't be perfect, it won't be seamless, but we're hoping it will accelerate the, you know, the, uh, the timeframes uh, between, you know, proponents, um, you know, committing to particular OEMs and, and the timeframe by which they can, you know, meet the, the, uh, the typical covenants required by banks uh, from, you know, quitting themselves on performance standards and, uh, and system strength. And we've got to get there. And, and the, the, you know, the, 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 um, the phrase I've heard, um, you know, some of my senior engineers use is, you know, we're probably going to have to take a little bit more risk than we have in the, in the past. And, and I think that's, that's probably right. You know, we, we've, we've got to keep the industry moving. Uh, we do have to keep it moving. And that's why it's so interesting to me that Queensland has this immediate potential when 
in other areas there's need to build transmission before you can do so much more. And just tell me, uh, have you actually got a batching process underway in any of these zones at the moment? Like are there a number of um, uh, um, projects that are going through the batching? We've actually, what we have done, David, is start to work on, on you know, what, uh, what would be required in terms of uh, changes to, you know, legislation or rules in order to make that happen. So that's probably the first step. Um, all of the projects we've been doing uh, at the moment have been in the, you know, in the old way, I guess, bespoke. Um, but we're, you know, we're moving them at a rate that, uh, you know, hopefully isn't causing too much uh, drama or delay to our counterparties, and and as I mentioned, we've we've literally got three of those renewable energy zones under construction. Um, you know, the first one will be, you know, weather permitting. Uh, you know, we should have that commissioned uh, later this year or early next year. Um, and and the process we've gone through is to do them on on a uh, outside our regulatory asset base. So we do them more as a, um, I guess you'd, you'd call it a classic merchant transmission investment, uh, where we're looking for. You know, an anchor tenant uh, to come along, and if you think of it as like a shopping centre, we're trying to work out where is our Coles, a supermarket, and our Kmart shopping centre. And once we've got, uh, you know, a, a Coles and a Kmart on board, we sort of figure, um, and, and we know that obviously the, the the topography and geography of our network pretty well. We also know all the developers uh, in town. We're, we're some of the first people I'll speak to, and on the strength of that, you know, we we can we can sort of put these propositions to our board who are. I've got a um, you know a, a, a pretty good handle on on the risks of uh, you know what a what a, a merchant renewable energy zone looks like you know the risks of um, you know full subscription or stranding and so on um, and and with that they you know back the judgment of our of our counterparties and our and our network planners and uh, and so we've got it gone on and, and and you know bankrolled three of these uh, renewable energy zones and and you know so far um, you know we'd report everything's going pretty well. And so, Paul, one of those zones is in the north because, uh, you know, I was looking at Cairns. Is, I'm not sure where the north is because there's about three definitions of north when I look at <laughs> Queensland. Um, uh, it's like in Sydney, anywhere, anywhere, anywhere west of, uh, uh, you know, the town hall is the western suburbs. But, uh, I mean, how far, I mean, Cairns, I was going to say, if I look at the AEMO renewable energy zones for Queensland, the N1 and the N2 zones, which are the far north, actually have excellent wind resources, really good wind resources, both in terms of capacity factor and also generally Queensland and New South Wales are not that well correlated in terms of wind. So from a, from an, a, a wide perspective, it's great to have wind energy in the north of Queensland before we get to all the other... I mean, what can you say about that? Yep, so uh, you've hit the nail squarely on the head, David. That was our thinking too. So uh, when we say that northern res, that really is a, a far north. So it's in, it's in that sort of corridor between Townsville and and, uh, and Cairns. There's actually not bad transmission capacity there. The biggest issue was uh, just an inadequacy of, of system strength. And we were able to convert one of our existing transmission lines uh, from 132 to 275 kV. And it was actually, believe it or not, some very clever person a long time ago strung this line as a 275 kV, but only energised it at 132. Now, we've had to go and do a bit of work at either end, you know, re replacing buses and transformers and so on. But uh, what it will do is lift the hosting capacity um, of, uh, of, far, of the far north and uh, enable, um, you know, we think uh, about another five or 600 megawatts of 
generation to to plug into that part of the world if if uh, you know if proponents are ready, willing, and able. And of course, the the anchor tenant for that one was um, Neowin with their Caban wind farm. And uh, you know, Louis and the team at Caban at uh, at Neowin did a terrific job um, and and had to jump a lot of hurdles to get that project over the line. But they you know they're, they're always a, a good team to work with. That's uh, what I hear frequently. And well, let's move on a little bit then, I guess, to the 500 kilovolt uh, new backbone that's going to be built in stages. Um, uh, I, I don't know where to start about that, but why don't I start with the social license side of things because that's kind of the popular area at the moment. I mean, historically, Queensland's generally been, in my opinion, a, a good place for, to get business done. Um, but but clearly, if you want to double the size of the transmission network, uh, which is pretty much what you're doing, uh, it's going to have to get a lot of people on side. Can uh, you've already done a large survey, or that is PowerLink has, I think 1,800 people or something like that, uh, to 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 try and get in front of it, which I think is interesting. What 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 can you tell me about the social license views generally? So, so as yeah, as a general principle, there's a you know there's a uh, the same issues keep coming up. But the interesting thing for us is the order and and the and the relative importance of which those issues emerge. And it's things like you know how you treat landowners, you know our, our transparency, how we communicate, all the things you'd expect a good organisation uh, would do. The prior and governance um, frameworks actually, interestingly, is extremely important. So the order in which those um, variables appear in different communities is subtly different. You know, governance may be an extremely important thing uh, in in the South Burnett region, whereas if you move around to somewhere like you know the the uh, the Calide Valley, it, it might be that that um, you know transparency is the you know the hot button issue. So they'll all appear in the same list of you know the five or six things that are that a transmission business must be good at but there is a subtle difference in the uh in the in the order of the priority and and on what that community values the most and, and that will no doubt be based on their lived experience on what has either gone well for them or what's gone wrong previously with other you know sort of infrastructure players or, or uh you know um, energy industry players so so that'd be the first thing i think Second thing is um, just you know in terms of how communities have reacted um, you know to the to the you know the um, you know the, the the transmission network up here. Look over the last look I don't know David maybe the last four or five years we, we've been uh, you know uh, building quite a lot of uh, transmission. You know we've got you know 185 kilometre line out to uh, you know from Mount Fox to uh, to, to to Kidston. Um, you know, we've got those three renewable zones we're working on and, you know, two of those have sort of got, you know, 60 or 70 kilometre lines on them and so on. So, so there, and there are others that are happening in the background as well. It, it wasn't really until we started work on the, uh, on the Barumba pumped hydro that we, we got our first taste of um, a community that galvanised a bit and they weren't happy with the way we'd gone about our business. We made a few mistakes um, and, and we'll, you know, we'll have to learn from those. They're, they're mistakes that you'd be familiar with, David. You know, do you, do you go out with three routes or two and, and you, know, um, you know, sort of how far and wide and early do you, you, know, do you engage and so on? Um, but it's, uh, you know, the 500 uh, network will, will be a bit tougher for obvious reasons. Yeah, although as, you, as, uh, as some of the documents point out, it's actually a narrower uh, corridor. Indeed. 
yeah, so I, I guess I, my question, I suppose, really is, Paul, do you anticipate material difficulties with getting the required social licence? I mean, how confident at this extremely early stage, and, and projects never look better than when they're in the spreadsheet, um, uh, yeah, look, we, yeah. It's, it's a really good question, David. And look, I think where, where I'd sort of start with it is to just to reiterate, you know, what we have done and, and, and what has, I mean, you know, lots and lots of things have gone really well over the last three to four years with, uh, you know, with the lines construction work we've done, you know, be it a, up there in, in North Queensland or the, or the central and, and uh, sorry, the, you know, the southern and, and western renewable energy zones. I mean, they, they have all gone very smoothly. And, um, you know, and, and, and we've had to deal with an awful lot of landowners on all of those corridors and uh, sort of, you know, in, in the vast majority of cases, you know, we've got, we've got a, a bunch of landowners that, look, did they put their hands up and say, pick us? I'm not sure that they did, but, but uh, you know, we're able to find, you know, corridors that, um, you know, that, that, you know, they can, they can accommodate and, uh, you know, we look after them accordingly. So, so, you know, our history has been pretty good. And I think, you know, where, where um, uh, our most recent uh, sort of um, uh, issues on, on Barumba, that, that they probably caught us a little bit out on, on guard in some respects. And, you know, we've had to go away and, and, uh, and very quickly regroup and get back out with the community. You know, we're listening to them very carefully and, and making sure we, you know, we respond to them respectfully. And, and we're probably about four or five weeks away from, Having a final uh, select, you know, corridor out, which um, which will which will obviously be a welcome news for those for those uh, communities. And then, in I guess the other question that immediately comes up is about the the transmission backbone. Um, uh, well, I guess firstly the the standard question is about cost because transmission costs have been going up dramatically, and uh, I find it a little difficult to sort out what was kind of one-off effects uh, and uh, and costs are always cyclical like everything else they go up and they go down for various reasons but you know the seven billion dollars of uh, capital expenditure that's mentioned in that report a lot of people scoff very highly about that um, and I, I, they're not even class whatever it is three or four estimates or something they're just estimates basically i mean what do you think about them yeah, look, I think if you're, you know, again, if you take the reference points where we were doing all this work, um, you know, we were getting pretty, pretty um, reasonable insights from our colleagues in southern markets and, and some of our key supply partners. And, and we came up with a, with, a, with a pretty conventional metric for, you know, 500 kV over, over reasonable distances. And, and I think the world changed a lot when, when the Ukraine war broke out and, and we've seen supply chains come to a, you know, sort of a, a, a shutter point that was, you know, sort of has just amplified everything we saw in the COVID period. And, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of the costs that are now rolling off the, uh, you know, off the, uh, off the spreadsheets, to me, look like they're another, you know, 40 to 50% higher. And, and David, I think you're right. I mean, there's a, there's a fair whack of that that's got to be cyclical. There may be some of it that's structural um, uh, or maybe, shall we say, medium-term structural, ultimately, you know, if there's profits there, you'd expect manufacturers to enter. Um, but at the moment, there's there's no doubt there's a cyclical element that you know we didn't capture in those uh, you know in in the you know in those earlier forecasts. And and I remember the, you know the, the forecast that the team put in front uh, you know before they they went through into you know into all those various documents. 
um, you know, they felt there was there was a, a bit of headroom in there. And, and as it turns out, you know, the world moved very, very quickly. And, and you uh, and I have have seen headroom and how fast it disappears. The, the, you know, in some of the LNG projects, uh, us analysts used to laugh about the contingency allowance, about how long that would take to get used up. Um, but I, I guess the point is you, you don't really have to incur a, a lot of those costs now, do you? I mean, at this stage, exactly, it's just... Yeah, spot on, David. I mean, the really big thing about, you know, the whole way the, that 500 um, suite of, 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 um, of stages was mapped out was very much contingent on certain events happening. Uh, you know, and really the first thing was, you know, seeing Barumba hit, uh, you know, financial close. And, and you know, obviously getting a, a 2,000 megawatt pumped hydro to financial close is not going to be easy uh, w w under ideal conditions, let alone current conditions. But that would give us the, you know, the, the, the uh, you know, the trigger point to then go and, and build out that first stage from Barumba, which is just near Gympie, you know, out to our uh, sort of really the start of our Western Downs Renewable Energy Zone. So so Haley's is our major node. And that's for, for those of you who are trying to think uh, with maps, uh, King, just near Kingaroy. And then we'd also thought we'd just go north from Barumba to Aluga and we can do that at our own pace. But it would be nice to connect Barumba up to both the inland and coastal circuits that we have here in Queensland. And then the idea, David, was to move from Waluga, just, just to the north of, of, of uh, Barumba. And when I say just to the north, you know, we're talking sort of tens of kilometres rather than, than hundreds. Um, but then we go from, from Waluga up to uh, Gladstone. And our thinking there was that we know there are a lot of uh, big industrial customers on the ground up there right now who are, you know, they're plugged into the electricity grid um, and they also happen to be burning natural gas or coal or or diesel or something else on site and they know they need to electrify and their shareholders are telling them that that's what they need to do. And uh, and so we're starting to see some of those uh, large industrial customers uh, up there in Gladstone, which is, you know, for those uh, who, who aren't familiar with the Queensland grid, it is the second largest load. Uh, so southeast Queensland where Brisbane Gold Coast, Sunshine Coast is, is obviously the largest load centre, but the second largest load centre by quite a margin is Gladstone. So there's a, there's a huge amount of loads that are potentially uh, um, likely to switch um, from some other fuel to electricity. And if they do, look, if you had 100% of the loads that have you know tapped on our door, we'd be talking well over 2,500 megawatts of base load capacity. Now, who knows what of that will electrify that that's that's a well beyond the, uh, you know, the ability of, of us here at Powerlink to forecast. But as we start seeing those plans firm up, we know that, getting that next corridor will be important. And it will also hook in then to those central Queensland renewable energy zones that I was referring to before. And then from there, David, you move from, you know, from, from Gladstone up to Mackay, which is, you know, the next sort of major city in the, you know, yes, and you're starting to get to the southern tip of the north, as you'd say, David, the north is a big area, of course. So, so Mackay is up there at the, you know, the, just at that threshold. And um, that's, of course, where the uh, Pioneer Burdekin um, pumped hydro site uh, is proposed to to establish itself, and it, it is capable of of um, you know the geology there is sort of quite remarkable, and it's capable of, a, of an extraordinarily large pumped hydro. Yeah, I mean, I I think it, it, what they're talking about, I can't remember, is it five five gigawatts for twenty four hours? I mean, it won't, wouldn't be the biggest project in the world, but it, but uh, it would be of <clears throat> Queensland scale. Can I put it, or even Texas scale, uh, if I can put it that way? 
No, that's right, David. If it, if uh, if you know the, the project can vary anywhere between you know two to five gigawatts, and um, and I think if you go to five gigawatts, that is it. That that's a pretty big that's a pretty big project, isn't it? So so again, that would give you that uh, trigger point to then go from Gladstone to Mackay, and then from Mackay up to Townsville, and then the, you know the plan was back down to Hewenden. So um, so so you could sort of see there was a really logical sequencing with a lot of optionality where, you know, you weren't having to commit to this sort of endless set of, of capital works. It was really about providing that spine and, and at the same time trying to retain the 275KV network as a brilliant collection device for, you know, low cost connecting for all of our wind and solar and, and, and battery and, and, and whatever other sorts of, um, you know, generation technologies want to connect into the grid. It would be a nice easy way for them to connect, but their power would get moved around those higher voltages. And Paul, Paul, with the 500 kilovolt thing, I've just got a couple of bits about that. Firstly, its main intention really is, I suppose, the pumped pumped hydro. But uh, how much um, just variable wind and solar would it enable? Yeah, so our, all of our modelling uh, was really centred on on uh, getting to that, if I can call it roughly, David. It was a, a you know the plan was a 80 percent. Um, you know, renewable energy by 2035, um, and and uh, you know, based on the the, uh, the ISP step change scenario um, included in there, um, was the and the interesting thing too. If you just had took if I just took you to a snapshot of um, somewhere in the in the mid early to mid 2030s, you know, in in the height of summer, uh, if you can imagine this, where you've got no coal plant operating whatsoever, it's just all you know, sort of solar, wind, batteries, you know, both household and, and, and utilities. I can imagine it very easily. Yep, So so and, and pumped hydros. When you look, sit back and look at what actually was flowing around the power system, you know, with, with uh, you know, 30-minute resolution, we had like a, a peak demand event of, you know, close to 13 gigawatts, um, but the actual peak power flows were closer to 17 gigawatts. So, so, and that was occurring during the daytime when you had, you know, just huge amounts of, really what we were doing, it was an exercise of moving solar and wind through time and space. And in particular, through time, through, you know, storing huge amounts of, of, of solar during the daytime uh, and unleashing it at night. Yeah. So it's a different way of thinking about the grid. You now need the grid to be able to move solar and wind through time and space rather than just focusing on how we meet peak demand with the transmission network, we've got to think about you know all of the um, the resources on the system and how collectively, as a as a as like a symphony orchestra, they're going to they're going to hit those high notes of uh, of demand. And it means they need to work a bit harder during the day to, to meet the nighttime peaks. I think that's right, and uh, there's also the behind the uh, you know it's so the behind the meter stuff. We all pay lip service to it all the time, but getting the integration of that right in Queensland where there's going to be so much uh, behind the metre stuff is, is going to be a big deal. But before we leave North Queensland, Paul, uh, you know, not the, um, the um, sceptic, I think, in me, uh, was amused to uh, see that you, you now own uh, Copper String 2, which is the bit from Hewenden to Mount Isa. That's another one or two billion of cost for another four or five hundred megawatts. And According to the press release, that's that's going to start construction uh, next year sometime. Yeah, David, we've um, that the uh, the, the government um, was uh, was eager to um, you know make that project happen. They've got a 
obviously a very broad lens that they're looking through uh, a lens well beyond you know one that that we at powerlink are capable of looking through i guess because they they are thinking across the the broader minerals playbook and and you know as i'm sure you're aware more than more than most um you know the uh, the potential for those critical minerals that that you know go into things like our our uh, lithium batteries and so on there's there's quite an abundance of them there i think it's the third largest deposits in the world, you know, behind sort of China and Russia from memory, or, or I'm not sure who's who's larger, but they're the top three. And, and uh, I think, you know, the, um, uh, you know, the regulatory regime here in Australia means they're, they're, they're probably attractive resources. And, and the, I think the government's wanting to make sure that they've, uh, you know, they're, they're opening up the um, the uh, the corridors um, uh, of infrastructure to make sure that happens. Uh, yeah. We've, we've got a bit of work to do just just to get our heads up. We've, we've literally you know um, uh, haven't even quite taken over all the, all the, all the details of the, of the project yet that'll happen early next month but uh, we've got our work cut out for us that's for sure we're going to have to learn how to walk and chew gum because that's a, that's quite a big uh, development pro- pipeline in itself. If I went and spoke to Andrew Blakers he'd probably uh, uh, Professor Andrew Blakers at ANU he'd probably tell me, that uh, you guys should be doing a DC transmission link, uh, you know, from these REZs. You'd, you'd uh, do a batch process of a couple of gigawatts and, and then uh, ship it down to, I don't know, Boyne Island Smelter or, or, or down to Brisbane via a DC link rather than the 500 kilovolt AC link. Uh, uh, there'd be a lot less transmission losses, I guess, uh, and the cost of DC is coming down and it's getting more reliable, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, David. You know, we um, uh, we did have a fifth stage <laughs> in, our, in our thinking, which sort of didn't quite make the the cut in the end. And and I, and I think it was because we look, we'd probably done enough to get you know a sort of a twelve or thirteen year outlook sufficient for our purposes. But you know, our um, we did look very carefully at a DC link that runs pretty much from where you describe, and, and we were thinking running all the way down to somewhere. Uh, like Haley's, and there's just a certain cutover point, and and I, I think you know it's a, I guess an empirical question at any given point in time. But there's a certain distance where it makes sense to switch from from AC to DC. You know, my my recollection of the last chart I saw of it, you know, may have been in that sort of six to eight hundred kilometre zone. Um, so so if you've got nothing in between, uh, you know, it, it starts to look really interesting. And, and I know that was. Uh, Something our our planners had 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 at least contemplated um, as a as a possibility because uh, there, there's just as I know I've heard you in some of your podcasts mentioned, David. There's just an extraordinary amount of resources in, in that you know renewable resources in that sort of you know central and and, and northern uh, Queensland areas. Um, you know if you could work out how to move them down to where the load centres are, um, it would be. Um, uh, obviously, very helpful uh, in so many ways, just because of the blistering wind speeds, the, you know, the diversity of those wind speeds, and, and the and of course, uh, you know, I've heard you say it before, those solar resources, you get get some pretty high capacity factors in that part of the world. You, you do, uh, and uh, let me just come back to PowerLink's um, um, funding. I suppose is the right way to think about it, and what it means for electricity prices. Um, each of the states that's gone for a big uh, renewable strategy uh, that didn't have one before, like New South Wales, Victoria and Queensland, has got their own uh, independent uh, forecaster to come up with a forecast that says electricity prices won't be much different to what they've always been. 
which is an unsurprising message in uh, several ways. But in terms of Powerlink, I mean, your balance sheet is over time is going to double. In, I mean, your capital expenditure has been actually been going down. Your RAB's been uh, reducing a little bit. Um, but, but clearly that's going to change a lot. What can you say about funding all of this and what it means, I suppose, ultimately for transmission costs to, to consumers? Yeah, good question, David. So, look, I guess, you know, as... Um as each step of, of a um, uh, you know of these augmentations progresses, you know you you get progressively closer to needing you know sort of additional equity to maintain credit metrics for all obvious reasons. And I think the other thing I'd observation I'd make is you know as these projects get large relative to an existing regulatory asset base um, uh, under the under the you know regulatory framework, the way in which we sort of ascribe revenues to, to, to new projects, you can get to a financeability issue. And it's something that um, I know that um, uh, the team at Transgrid are encountering right now and, and um, have put a lot of thought into how that might be managed going forward. Um, in terms of, and, and so for us, you know, uh, at the moment, at least as far ahead as we can see, and, and, and when I say as far as, as we can see, over the course of the next four to five years, we, you know, we, we expect we'll be able to navigate the you know the um, the commitments we've got save copper string that's probably that's a, that's a bit separate um we, we sort of haven't quite worked that one out with government yet uh, but we will do over the course of of, uh, of calendar year 2023 in terms of what it means for prices david i guess all of the scenario modeling that we have have run um, in, in cahoots with our colleagues over at uh, and we and we do some joint sort of work with uh with the team at ey rome um uh, and we've we've done that for, for pretty good reason, and we've we've run hundreds of simulations. We've actually got their sort of models running on our blade computers out the back here, so we can accelerate the speed and the volume and, and the amount of scenarios that we can get our head around. And all roads kept leading back to that pathway that we've articulated as being the lowest cost future. And I guess the the you know the thing that that I'm always conscious of is um, and and it goes back to where we started from in a way, David, on the cost side of things. You know these are commodity markets; they go up, they go down, and right now they're up. You know the, the cost of electricity here and in many other jurisdictions around the world is is quite elevated, and the cost of entry is is up. You know I, I think if I remember one of your recent podcasts, you know uh, one of the one of the guests mentioning you know their costs were up a good thirty percent, and I and I hear that number a lot. Um, and when you sort of put all that into a mixing bowl, you know, your, your current prices are probably a bit higher than they used to be a few years ago, but they're a long way south of, of where they currently are. So there's still a big price to be made. And we, I think, you know, the, the transmission um, charges themselves, you know, if you're going to increase the, the, uh, the capital on the ground, you know, sort of all things being equal, then yes, you know, transmission charges would, would increase. Um, um, and then sort of... Think you'd need, we'd need to think through what it looks like as you see loads increase, and, and by loads I'm talking, you know, the industrial that we referred to earlier, um, you know, electrification of the transport fleet and so on. And I'm, I'm, you know, again, I'd be speculating as to what that looks like. But you know, every uh, the one thing I can tell you about a an organisation like Powerlink will, um, you know, would avoid putting any dollars on the ground if we don't think it's in the best interests of of the people who own us, which just happens to be our customers. Yeah, yeah, of course that's true. And, but uh, we 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 know that the transmission is the is the most important uh, 
building block of the whole decarbonisation system. You simply can't do it without having the transmission able to connect up the loads and, and the sources of power. That's the fundamental building block and that you know that's why it's such good news I think that the, even without doing a lot in Queensland you can add a lot more. Now there are two other quick topics I wanted to cover quickly. Uh, uh, the first one is given that there is this capacity in Queensland have you actually got enough uh, people coming to talk to you to, um, to con enough projects under development from the inquiries that you're seeing? Yeah look they're, they're, uh, the thing I would observe about the um uh, about activity on the ground here, David, is is when the QEJP, that, that Queensland Energy and Jobs Plan, was announced last year, um, I, I thought this might be the case, but uh, probably had, had maybe perhaps underestimated it, but it was like a giant starter gun went off. And, uh, and we noticed a, an immediate rise in, you know, in, in project um, inquiries and applications. The other thing that we've noticed too is a, a real shift in the size of projects. So... Um, I can't tell you how many projects sort of turned up saying 200 and are now, you know, sort of three, four, even five times that is, is, is where their starting point has become. And, and I think a lot of that has to do, of course, with the fact that, you know, the Queensland government in making that announcement uh, last year were basically saying to the market, we are going to create room for renewables to turn up. We're going to get our, our coal machines to very in, a, in, a, in, you know, in a, as an orderly a fashion as we can, start to make their way um, out of the market on a, on a regular basis, morph them into, into little um, generation hubs where there might be a bit of a mix of things on the ground from, you know, the old steam turbines running in synchronous mode, batteries, you know, maybe gas turbines, but also O&M hubs. So they've, they've been really thoughtful about how to manage that transition. Uh, and also, too, with, with the incentive of an Olympics coming in 2032. So, you know, so the government's pretty motivated to see, uh, you know, renewables hit the ground sprinting. And I, and I think, you know, how that um, plan was received last year based on the evidence that I've seen on, on you know, connection inquiries and, uh, and applications uh, gives me a, a lot of confidence. And I had been saying, David, for, for some time, you know, the Queensland government had a 50% renewable energy target by 2030. And, and I'd been saying even before the, that, that uh, energy and jobs plan had been released that I felt that uh, the rate at which I was seeing, you know, sophisticated, you know, world-class renewable companies come through our door and execute and start building things. And, you know, think about sort of, you know, Axiana and their sort of, you know, one gigawatt project uh, along with ARC and Cleanco at, uh, down there in the, uh, on the Southern Downs. And, um, as Exhibit A, and there are a few others that I probably can't mention just yet, but they're not too far away. Um, I felt that we, we'd hit the 50% target, you know, this side of 2028. Um, just the size of, of the projects and, and the level of sophistication of the developers involved, I just couldn't believe they wouldn't get there. Yeah, and I think it's, it is, we, we are in a uh, world where one gigawatt and 500 megawatt projects, uh, you know, are the starting point. Uh, that, that's my own feeling, however you get there. But, but leaving that to one side, the other thing I suppose is that historically, you know, the connection between Queensland's been an exporter of electricity and it's not really emphasised in the Queensland jobs plan. It's all about what's good for Queensland, of course, uh, and Queenslanders. Um, but um, really within PowerLink, you've got this Queensland Connect idea of having, uh, going to a 500 kilovolt connection to New South Wales. Um, uh, could you talk to me a little bit about the timing and process around that and what it might mean? 
Yeah, David, there's there's a uh, there's a very large number of of high quality resources in you know in, in southern Queensland and northern New South Wales, and I think you know, as we start to see some of those projects come to fruition, you know, we, we're going to need to think about uh, I think as as an industry, you know, what's going to best serve uh, you know the east coast because we we do have interconnectors, and that means that if something's going wrong in in one state, it's going to have an impact on 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 the, on the state next door. So. Um, we don't have anything sort of firm on our on our books right now, David. But um, you know we're, we're very mindful always that um, uh, you know obviously an organisation like PowerLink, we do need to serve our, our our Queenslanders first. But we also need to be mindful if we if we get you know sort of interactions uh, in adjacent states wrong, uh, that's going to blow back on all of us very badly. Yeah, I, I mean, I, again, I emphasise that the correlation between wind and New South Wales and wind in Queensland is relatively low, much lower than the correlation of wind within Queensland. And so there's great benefit to both states, in my opinion, from uh, a strong treating them as one region and uh, you know having enough connect transmission to to make that a, a reasonable way to think about it. For, you know, never mind the price. Well, Paul, uh, we've been speaking for a while. I'm sure with so much going on, you'd, you'd, you'd be super busy. And uh, I, I've learned a lot out of this. And I'd like to say thanks very much uh, for talking to us and uh, hope we can do it again sometime. Good on you, David. Good to talk. And that was uh, Paul Simshauser, uh, the CEO of PowerLink. David, what were your big takeaways from that interview? I mean, I guess the, the main ones, I suppose, are just the amount of capacity that kind of already exists or they've made recently available. Uh, yes, as you said, there's less uh, renewable capacity, about three gigawatts, I think, or before or something by the time they get to the end of this year, at least. Um, but uh, but Queensland has this fantastic resources uh, of solar because it's closer to the equator uh, and a lot of land area and also wind, which is not just terrific in capacity factors in theory, but also has the wonderful benefit of not being highly correlated uh, with wind in the south, uh, in New South Wales and states further south, so that you know, when you think about Queensland as part of the NEM, it really has a huge amount to offer. And there's no wonder that the ISP sees Queensland's share of the NEM uh, actually increasing over time. And uh, because, the, so what Paul identified is that there's scope to put about 12 gigawatts in total of wind and solar VRE capacity onto the Queensland grid right now with the existing transmission uh, networks um, or about nine gigawatts of new new stuff and that he's gone to work or they've gone to work on putting together renewable energy zones already uh, which can aggregate capacity and then hopefully smooth the connection process out with uh, AEMO in the in the way that New South Wales is also hoping to do but which as we heard last week from uh, uh, Mr. Rona is still, you know, the, the developers are still sceptical as to the savings that they'll achieve out of that. But not only all of that, one of the zones that uh, um, uh, PowerLink has, has put together outside of the RAB is in northern Queensland, which might be, uh, you know, Kansas 1900 kilometres from Brisbane. Uh, but it is does have these fantastic wind resources. And he mentioned once again Neowin and the Caban uh, wind farm, and um, which is which is going ahead up there. Absolutely. Um, yes, it's just sort of fascinating to see sort of Queensland sort of catching up quite rapidly and um, um, keep on announcing more battery storage installations to go next to the coal-fired power stations, which will 
um, be closing over the next 10, 15 years. It's going to be fascinating to see what um, that turns out. Although I do notice that their own energy plan kind of back ends a lot of the installations and new generations towards the end of this decade. As, uh, as, as do other states, frankly. New South Wales has been, was originally going to do a very staged approach, but then realised that coal generators were going to get in ahead of time and they, they had to speed things up. And Victoria, of course, wants the costs of offshore wind to come down before they go any harder on their program. Um, uh, I did, uh, I've just uh, lost the thread. Another a couple of things that Paul mentioned were, and I think you can see from their transmission planning report, is that the, there's work on developing a 500 kilovolt link between Queensland and New South Wales. Uh, which if it came to fruition, I think would, would greatly enhance the overall ability of Queensland to be part of the NEM uh, and everyone to benefit, including Queensland from New South Wales uh, resources. And uh, secondly, he re-emphasised, as everyone else has, that costs have gone up already, uh, 30% for, uh, uh, across wind and solar, and I expect it's 20 to 30% in transmission as well, so that uh, you know, there's a lot of capital that's got to be found. And then he also mentioned that um, Powerlink themselves are going to have to find another billion uh, to uh, manage the um, uh, copper string too uh, that's uh, <coughs> been dumped on them. Well, that's right, yes. Look, David, um, we might just sort of move on to some of the other things this week. Oh, look, I guess the big set piece this week was the uh, latest synthesis report from the IPCC, the Internet, International Panel on Climate Change, just really reinforcing the fact that um, the window is still open to one, for 1. 1.5 degrees, but it's, it's closing pretty rapidly, and unless we actually get going very quickly, it's going to shut. Um, it notes that we actually have the technologies we need. Um, it identified wind and solar as providing the bulk um, or the most um, emissions reduction potential of any technologies um, and at lowest cost. Um, the other ones, of course, are things like energy efficiency, uh, electrification, and not chopping down forests and probably being a bit more efficient about agriculture. Um, but I'm not too sure whether this is going to cause any sort of great acceleration in, mission, in emission reduction efforts, um, David. And uh, the political debate in Australia is quite fraught. We've learned this week that Bob Brown has actually ditched his life membership of the Australian Conservation Foundation um, over, the, um, over the positions taken on, on, on whether to uh, accept Labor's current design of the safeguard mechanism or whether to continue to push for it to be tighter and specifically to exclude new coal and gas projects. Yeah, whether it's Bob Brown or Paul Keating, uh, you can't keep these grumpy old men down, can you really? Um, uh... But it's not just, grumpy, not just grumpy old men. I should point, actually point out that Australia's richest man, Andrew Forrest, um, is saying exactly the same thing. And I'm sure Australia's second richest man and third richest man, Mike Cannon Brooks and Scott Farquhar, will probably say the same thing as well. So it's not just the sort of, you know, the, the loose greeny end, as some people might describe them. It's no, no, Giles, I don't say that for an instant. Uh, and and I, must, I count myself in the camp that, that says that uh, we have to make greater efforts to actually cut coal production and gas production at the source because it's become clear that we, uh, uh, we can't rely on other countries um, doing, stopping using our coal and gas, particularly in Asia. They're not going to, um, there is no significant carbon price at the moment in Asia as a, as a very general statement, certainly not in India and certainly not in China. 
not in South Korea and not in Japan. These are our trading partners. In fact, Japan has been pushing Australia hard to do more gas. Um, uh, and and, and uh, this, this worries me a lot. So I, can, I fully uh, sympathise with those efforts, despite the difficulties that it makes for GDP. And I, I also see, on the other hand, uh, what we all see, that Australia, uh, at least in knowledge stakes, has a lot to offer by decarbonising early on. And when you spoke about the IPCCCC report, which I urge everyone to look at, it's only a summary, but there's some great graphics in there that'll make you think. Um, uh, you, you know, we know that the marginal abatement cost for uh, really is more complex than we used to think about it and has a time dimension. And that, uh, you know, we want to decarbonise electricity because having done that, we can then go on with all the rest of the stuff like uh, getting rid of industrial heat and, and electrifying transport and so on and so forth. And, and the key above it all is, firstly, let's build the transmission as fast as we possibly can and let's build the wind and solar. We should be seeing, you know, already three, four gigawatts of wind and solar at, at a minimum being announced uh, you know, as soon as possible. I forget the exact numbers, but, but we need to be doing a lot more projects a lot more quickly than we're actually doing them. Well, we've noticed actually the uh, the news on new wind and solar projects has pretty much dried up actually over the last couple of months. I'm not too sure what's going on out there. I don't know whether people are still waiting for various auctions to be in, in tenders which have been conducted by various state governments or whether suddenly the costs, because of those cost rises that Paul Sims has or has um, mentioned and um, other people mentioned beforehand, is actually having an impact. Um, David, before we just wrap up for the day, I just thought I might mention um, the uh, South Australian government um, sort of um, EOI expressions of interest for the hydrogen facility in South Australia. Um, some people thought, that, I mean, we had Sam Crafter, um, the head of the Office of, um, of Hydrogen in uh, South Australia on this podcast late last year, and it was a great interview and fascinating interview to hear their approach to it. And, some people probably think it's probably a bit barking mad, sort of throwing government money at a uh, electrolyzer of that size and a, and a hydrogen generate um, a power plant uh, ought to be built by 2025. But it might actually be, might actually look like a good thing considering the, influ the influence of the, IR, um, the Inflation Reduction Act in the uh, US and various initiatives in the EU. It might be hard otherwise to actually get some of these hydrogen projects built in Australia without having that direct government funding. Uh, yes, that's probably right, although I do think a broader scheme with uh, tax concessions like the IRA has a lot of attractions, uh, lots of carrots, no sticks. Um, and I'd, I'd also say that, as we discussed last week, despite the fact that pro uh, costs have gone up, in fact, prices, particularly considering REC prices, uh, are still high enough to easily justify projects. So I don't think that's really what's holding them up. Uh, and I think the federal government could do uh, move even faster and, uh, you know, could make have a better uh, emissions reduction scheme. I think we have to look at this more closely in the next week or two with someone. Uh, but I just don't think the design of the schemes is as clever as it could, it could be, despite all the work that uh, Chris Barnes put into it. Mm. Okay, interesting stuff. Well, David, um, we've got a couple of good interviews lined up over the next couple of weeks, so um, we invite people to come back uh, next week and uh, the following week to hear more uh, interesting interviews. Um, thanks very much for your interview with Paul Simshauser from Powerlink today, and thanks to all our listeners out there. Thanks, of course, to our sponsors, Evergen and Pylon, and um, we'll be back uh, early next week with another episode of Energy Insiders. Bye for now. 
Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.